This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and German Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nicole Coleman, your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Sarah Jones about her new book, Towards a Collaborative Memory, German Memory Work in a Transnational Context. Sarah Jones, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. Sarah, I wonder if you could begin by telling us a little bit about yourself. Uh, for sure, yeah. Um, so I'm Sarah Jones. I'm a professor in modern languages at the University of Birmingham in the UK. Um, I am a scholar of memory studies. That tends to be how I describe myself, um, particularly uh, memory of, of post-socialism in Germany and Central and Eastern Europe. Um Uh, this is my third book, um, uh, previously written on memory of the Stasi, um, and my first book was on GDR literature and, and cultural history. All right, thank you. And so how did you come to write towards a collaborative memory? Did it grow out of the other books, or how, how did you get started with this one? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think the kind of best research projects do tend to come almost by accident, and I'd say that's, that's almost what happened with this one. Um, so yes, I said this is my third book. Um, the first one um, looked at uh, literature and its relationship to power um, in East Germany in the former GDR. Um, and that kind of led me towards looking at uh, quite a lot of Stasi files and, and being kind of interested in that um, area of things. Um, and also thinking about how uh, writers um, think about their relationship to the Stasi, whether as informants or as, as victims of observation. Um, and then that interest then led to um, my second book, which was on representations of the Stasi through different kinds of first-person accounts, so what, I, what I call testimony in different kinds of media. Um, and I looked at autobiographical writing, memorial museums, and documentary film. And it was that interest in memorial museums which kind of led to this, this uh, most recent book, Towards a Collaborative Memory, because uh, one of my key Uh, sites, key case studies, uh, was Gedenkstätte Hornschönhausen uh, in Berlin. Um, and I, I was reading their publicity material kind of on one occasion um, for an aspect of my research. And I noticed um, that the then director of the memorial, Hubertus Knabe, um, used a visit that he'd made to sites in the Czech Republic um, to kind of bounce off their processes of remembering the past in order to criticize Uh, German memory culture and what he, he saw as the deficits in German memory culture. And that got me kind of interested in um, the tra or maybe where more of and got me interested in the transnational dimension of their work um, and also the transnational dimension of um, other memory uh, actors or memorial institutions in Germany. So then I started to want to know a little bit more about this. So I started by um, exploring particular relationships between Hornschenhausen um, and sites in Romania, particularly the Saget Memorial, uh, which is a comparable site to Hornschenhausen in Romania. Um, also a little foray into learning Romanian, which was useful, um, useful for the book as well. Um, and then uh, quite by chance, I met um, the wonderful Jenny Wussenberg, 
um, who scholars of memory studies uh, will know well, at the German Studies Association conference in 2013. And we were presenting together on a panel about kind of transnational dimensions of memory. Um, and she was using social network analysis. Uh, and I'd never come across this before. And I was I was fascinated by its potential for what Jenny was doing, which was looking at um, kind of existing European networks. Um, and I sort of thought, well, this has got a lot of potential for looking at the networks created uh, by and through the activities of, of the memorial institutions that I'm interested in, for example, Hohenschenhausen. So that then kind of led me down that path um, to looking at social network analysis, which then also kind of led to the other theoretical framings in the book around things like relational sociology, which is closely entwined with social network analysis. So I started experimenting a little bit to see how it could be made useful. It took me a really long time um, to move away from the kinds of methodologies that I'd been doing or to contribute, add to those methodologies with social network analysis. Um, and um, I'd say this book has been a real labour of love. Uh, it's been hard, but it's been a real labour of love because I really kind of felt that this could be something interesting um, to do. Um, and um, the research period uh, covered uh, kind of that long period between at least 2013 and then when the book appeared in 2022. Um, and I will say it was kind of two pregnancies and a pandemic as well um, <laughs> that, that that period covered. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I find the book really engaging too. Um, it's it's methodologically so I don't know rooted in in these quantitative and qualitative analyses, and and there's just this hook at the beginning, right, where you're like, okay, I really want to know more about this. So I wonder whether we can start uh, kind of with that hook that you have in the beginning, where where you um, explain a little bit about Germany's uh, or the perspective about Germany as the master atoner and the resulting narrative that then German memory work or the process of coming to terms with the past in Germany could serve as a model for other countries. Can you explain that narrative a little bit and then also the problems with that idea? Yeah, um, so, I mean, the other thing that was going on as I was trying to finish uh, this book um, was the what's been called the Historica Strike 2.0, right, the, the, or the catechism debate. Um, so that's really where uh, I opened the book, which might seem a little bit kind of left field for a book that's about kind of GDR memory culture. And I, I think I wanted to see these these kind of bigger connections as well. I, I wanted to explore those bigger connections. Um, so, yeah, the, the kind of opening is um, thinking about in, in 2020 with uh, Black Lives Matter and uh, Western European nations and, and the United States being called upon uh, to remember uh, their, their histories of colonialism um, in a way that they hadn't done adequately up until that point. Um, and one thing that uh, took caught my eye was that there was an article by Susanna Nyman in The Guardian um, called Learning from the Germans, um, which of course is also the title of, of a book that she published um, fairly recently as well. Um, and I mean, Nyman's argument is, is more nuanced than simply we should learn from the Germans, but it was this idea that... Um, that Germany knew how to, to do this. They knew how to address um, their racist past um, in terms of the Holocaust and therefore Britain could learn from them. Um, and my wondering was, well, okay, um, but why are we learning from the Germans rather than say learning from and collaborating with um, formerly colonized people? That, that seems a strange approach in and of itself. Um, and then also kind of delving more into uh, Germany's own memory of colonialism. Um, and uh, seeing the debates around that as also being inadequate. And then this, of course, feeds into the catechism debate um, and the publication of uh, Michael Rothberg's Multidirectional Memory in German in 2021 and, and the debates that were uh, launched around that as well, as, as whether, firstly, you know, what, what, whether German memory culture can expand to accommodate, accommodate memory of post-colonialism and what that would mean, um, but also highlighting the kind of... Uh, blind spots and flaws uh, in German memory culture, which then call into the question that its reputation as, as, as a master retainer. And then um, thinking also a little bit about this as part of Germany's nation brand, and I think that, that comes more perhaps later in the book where um, we see that, that Germany's reputation as being able to remember its past adequately or perfectly almost is part of a, an export product uh, that Germany does 
German actors take to other other parts of the world. Um, and the problems with that uh, relate to kind of the nature of German memory culture, which is embedded in a European catastrophe and a European way of memory. Um, and then if we are then framing this as being universal and kind of part of universal norms, um, then we are potentially um, enacting another kind of colonialism by exporting it to other to other contexts. And um, that's where the question about cosmopolitan memory and whether we have a decolonial cosmopolitanism comes in as well. Though that's kind of feeding more into the kind of theoretical frameworks. But then the other question was... Uh, where the GDR fits into this as well, which um, in the catechism debate and, um, and the Rothbard debate, the GDR was actually quite absent um, from those discussions, memory of the GDR, but also GDR memory uh, of the Holocaust um, or relationships to colonialism as well. And um, to me, it seems like the GDR sits uh, in between uh, memory of the Holocaust and memory of colonialism. It's part of institutional memory in, in Germany, it's part of the federal memorial concept. There is an awful lot of money that goes into um, Alphabetung of the GDR in Germany. Um, on the other hand, um, it's often perceived by those who lived in the GDR as being marginalised in different ways, whether that's the kind of marginalisation of everyday experience or, and that's more particularly for the case for the actors that I'm looking at, a sense that their memory is marginalised because Holocaust memory is so central in German memory culture. Um, so we see a kind of in-betweenness for GDR memory, which I thought was particularly interesting then if we're looking at how actors trying to remember the GDR um, are part of this transnational networking of, of memory institutions that, that German, Germany is engaged with. Um, so that's, that's, I think, how the, the, the book is kind of jumping off from that point is let's have a look at the GDR uh, institutions and what narratives they are exporting as they, as they travel and what networks they're creating as well. Mm -hmm. And you do this by looking at three particular organizations. Can you introduce these three um, briefly? Uh, yeah, briefly. Um, so the first is um, the uh, Stasi Records Archive, um, so the Federal Archive for the Records of the State Security Service of the former GDR, I believe is its full title, or was its full title, because it's an organization that actually doesn't exist anymore um, since last year. Uh, so um, I think this is this is a well-known organisation um, was set up in the kind of immediate aftermath of the vendor to um, manage the Stasi Records archive, uh, to manage uh, access to that archive for, for victims, uh, in some circumstances perpetrators, but also media and researchers in order, uh, uh, according to the Stasi Records law, um, but also was engaged in um, public education um, had exhibitions and, and so on. And also, as I kind of found out through research of the book, quite a lot of international activity as well, um, was wrapped up um, and the uh, archive is still physically in the same location, but um, is now administered by um, the Federal Archive. Um, and the commissioner um, is, is now uh, a kind of commissioner for, for something else. Um, and then the second institution was um, the Memorial Horn Schönhausen, um, which I'd spent a lot of time doing research for, for my second book. Um, so controversial organization, or has been historically controversial. Um, uh, former Stasi prison uh, in Berlin, so the largest Stasi prison in, uh, in the GDR. Uh, so Stasi remand prison, so where prisoners were held before trial. Um, and um, set up as a memorial uh, principally driven by, by victims' organisations in, in the mid-1990s, um, and then eventually kind of institutionalised uh, in 2000 as, as a foundation um, um, with a director uh, who was Hubertus Knaba up until 2018. Um, and uh, Knaba was, was a quite controversial figure um, in terms of his memory politics, which... Um, was very much kind of advocating for, for the victims and, and certainly victims saw him as an advocate for them, um, but was controversial in, in the German context for some of the statements he made about comparability of national uh, socialist and Stalinist crimes and, and, and things like that. Um, who was then also, uh, who, who lost his position in, again in a, in a controversy um, around METI and um, allegations against his, his vice director. And then uh, the third institution is the uh, Stiftung Aufarbeitung, um, so the foundation 
um, for uh, the reappraisal of the GDR uh, of the SED dictatorship, as it's titled, um, which was a foundation set up, um, um, a foundation set up in um, uh, 1998, following the um, the, uh, the Enquete Commission at that time, um, and whose role it is to kind of promote public knowledge uh, and research about about the GDR. Um, and again, um, kind of very engaged transnationally and support it, support also fund a lot of projects transnationally. Okay, so um, I'm going to describe the structure of the book uh, quickly before we then delve into your findings and your chapters. In chapter one, you explain your methodology, then chapter two is a quantitative analysis, and then you discuss your qualitative findings over four chapters. Chapter three and four focus on different regions, and then chapters five and six on actors. So let's start at the beginning. In your first chapter, you explain your method. Um, and maybe we begin with the definition and the positioning. So how do you define transnational? And can you talk about it in relation to memory studies, which has long been centered on the national? So how do you work with that tension or change? Um, yeah, so the, the transnational I kind of define as um, uh, linkages between uh, different national contexts. Um, sorry, I'm just going to have one more drink of water. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the linkages between different national contexts uh, um, of different kinds, um, including transnational networks, such as the ones that I'm looking at. Uh, so, yeah, memory studies has kind of historically been quite focused on the national. Um, but I'd say in the last 10 to 15 years, there's been been quite a lot of work that's looking at it um, more transnationally. Um, kind of recognizing that um, the, the national borders of memory are fairly artificial. Um, there is, of course, something about national memory, but um, that kind of travels across borders uh, through people, uh, conflict, um, <clears throat> um, or even kind of media products that travel across borders, and also these kind of networks that are, cre- that are set up um, around memory politics. So uh, I kind of explore some of those those approaches in the book, um, particularly think, looking at things like multi-directional memory and cosmopolitan memory, um, which have tended to focus on on Holocaust memory, which um, certainly has global dimensions as well as national ones. And then uh, I kind of come to them some of the more recent work, which has looked at um, transnational in question in in terms of relationality. Um, so particularly uh, work by um, Astrid Earle and Jeffrey Ollick, um, thinking about um, um, mnemonic relationality um, and and also drawing on uh, concepts from relational sociology. And that's my kind of jumping point for, for delving into relational sociology in a little bit more detail, um, because it is closely related to social network analysis. And also, I think it's, it's quite helpful for thinking particularly about what um, has been termed interconnections, um, so where where two things meet. So that be, might be two memory cultures or it might be two actors meet. And one of the key kind of precepts of relational sociology is that we're looking at relationships, we're looking at connections rather than the individuals alone. So it's not that we ignore the individuals and the actors, they still have their agency, but what we're interested in is the relationship between them. Um, so that's... Um, uh, can be called it's called transactions um in in some aspects of relational sociology that's what it's called um and we're interested in in what's created by those transactions the kind of newness that comes out of the relationships so it's trying to get beyond also this kind of debate between structure and agency and, and holism and, and atomism um by saying that we're not just looking at the kind of individual unit or we're not just looking at the structure that surrounds them we're looking at um, the relationships between individual units that then build that structure, but also the structure then impacts back on those relationships. So that then leads me to the concept of collaboration, um, because collaboration is uh, kind of dictionary, different definition-wise, is two people, things, actors, institutions coming together to work together in order to create something new. Um, and I think that kind of meshes nicely with the ideas of relational sociology of a transaction of two two items, two agents coming together in a relationship that then creates something new. Um, so that's the kind of underpinning of, of collaborative memory as a context. Um, but then also part of that relationship is what we call a relational definition. Um, so in our relationship culture, um, the idea of 
what uh, a rela- what is commonly understood by that relationship. Um, so in general terms, that might be our, um, our relational understanding of, uh, say, a relationship between a mother and a daughter or between a colleague and um, a co-worker or a colleague, a co-worker and their boss, that kind of relational culture that, that, that we kind of expect to happen. And that impacts the way the relationships that people have. And that is then also framed by meaning, by cultural blueprints. So then transferring that to our context, if we're thinking about um, transnational collaborations between actors coming from different national contexts, um, the relationship culture that they have, the expectations of what that relationship is, is, is going to be about are determined in part by the two national cultures that they're coming from, but also from broader cultural blueprints. Uh, for example, about the relationships between East and West or the relationships between the Global North and the Global South, um, which means that when we're thinking about these transnational networks um, created by and through our organisations, or the organisations that I've looked at, we need to recognise that the narratives um, and the relationships are going to be structured by the understandings of what a relationship between an actor from Germany and, and an actor from Algeria, for example, is likely to entail which is also likely to be different from the perspective of the German actor and and the Algerian actor as well. Um, Which means that concepts of coloniality um, and also the relationship between East and West are going to be embedded in our networks, in the meaning structures of our networks. And the kind of argument of the book is if we are talking about cosmopolitan memory, then in order for it to be a kind of truly collaborative approach, then it needs to be what I would, what has been termed, or what Mignolo had terms, a decolonial cosmopolitanism, which means that both actors in that collaboration are giving full agency to be the subjects of knowledge and not just the objects of knowledge. So they've got the agency to determine how the past is remembered and what the kind of best methods are for that, rather than just being kind of the students of those approaches. Um, that's the kind of framework that I set up for the book. And then... The next question is, well, how do you find that out? Um, and that's that's the kind of the rest of the chapter. Chapter one is about the methodology, um, starting um, with the quantitative methodology. So I explain how, how I went about the social network analysis um, and kind of what what that can mean, what it can give us. Um, and then also the, the narrative analysis um, and um, how I went about that in, in, in a kind of systematic way in order to, to develop some patterns. Um, out of the very large volume of texts that I gathered um, from these organizations. Yeah, and so moving towards the quantitative analysis, you collected data uh, for your three focus organizations over an eight-year period from 2009 to 2016. Can you talk a little bit about what kind of uh, data you collected and how you recorded it and analyzed it then? How did you work with that data? Yeah, um, so this was a real learning curve for me because this was the new methodology. Um, so the process I uh, finally settled on um, was uh, I, I went through uh, all of the publicity material, uh, so publicly available material for all three organizations over the eight-year period, which was a very large volume of material, particularly for the Stiftung Alpha Weitung, but also for the others, um, and identified uh, transnational collaborations. Um, No, I felt it legitimate just to deal with the public material because I was interested in the narratives that they were kind of constructing um, about these collaborations, which is also about their public presentation of themselves. Um, So this is not this is not just, you know, the narrative analysis and not to say this is definitely what it was actually like on the ground or this is not this is definitely the meaning given to it by every single actor involved. This is about how these institutions publicly represent these collaborations um, in their publicity material, which can be very revealing. Um, so, yes, I gathered all of this data and then went through it um, in order to identify transnational collaborations, which um, I can give a, a narrower definition of what that means in the book. But basically, when there was a German actor and, and at least one other, um, one non German actor involved in a particular activity. And then I created Excel spreadsheets, which into matrices. Um, which are called adjacency matrices in social network analysis, where you have a kind of list of all the actors across the kind of horizontal and then also in the vertical. And then you can fill in um, 
numbers basically into the spreadsheet. Um, so if there's a collaboration, you put one, and if there's not, then you put zero between the column and the row. Um, and um, I made the decision to have weighted data. So if there was more than, if they collaborated more than once, then I'd put two or three or whatever it was. Then that data can then be converted into um, a format that can be read by social network analysis software. Um, and I used UCINet, um, which is a quite commonly used software for, for this kind of research. Um, and then um, I am not a mathematician, so I had to learn what buttons to press and what the output would mean. Um, but I didn't have to do the maths myself, luckily. Um, so then you can input the, these these matrices into the software and, and do particular algorithms, um, which I talk about in chapter two in terms of things like centrality, um, homophily, um, the kind of makeup of the network and so on. Um, so it was, uh, there were around 800 collaborations across the three organizations uh, involving a very large number of different actors. Yeah, and in your book, you have lots of visuals to help us make sense of, of these data points that you found. So it's probably pretty difficult to talk about it just with words uh, without the visuals in front of us. But can you talk about the most important data points um, that you found and then that really lay the foundation for your qualitative analysis of the narratives? Yeah, so that's absolutely the purpose of this uh, this chapter is to lay the foundation for the qualitative analysis, to identify um, the key aspects of the structure of the networks with the view that structure and meaning are, are interrelated, as I've just talked about. Um, so the book kind of, uh, so that the chapter proceeds by looking at different algorithms, basically different measures of social network analysis and building up an argument. Um, the essential argument uh, is that um, these networks are divided into regions um, connected predominantly by powerful, in brackets, Western German actors. Um, so I start by showing, doing um, kind of ego net composition, as it's called, which basically means a kind of analysis of who's in the network, um, looking at where they come from in terms of region. Um, so I started off doing it by country, but I had 100 different countries and it was kind of meaningless after a while. So I had to group the countries by region, um, which, as I explained in the book, is, a, is kind of about um, memory politics. So thinking about the post-socialist context is one region, the post-Soviet context is another region, um, thinking about Central and South America as a particular kind of memory region. It's always going to be problematic to divide the world up in that way, but it it had had to think of some way of, of grouping institutions um, in order to make the data meaningful. Um, so I, I do this analysis of uh, the Econet composition and show um, kind of who are the main, which main regions and also which kind of which main actor types by which I mean, you know, are they an NGO or are they a, a state mandated institute uh, or an archive or a memorial or kind of a church actor? Now, actually, the kind of data that the actor type doesn't become that interesting until, until later on when we're looking at the narratives. But the regional context um, is important for showing slight differences between the institutions. Um, so unsurprisingly, they all work with a lot of Central and Eastern European post-socialist um, institutions and post-Soviet um, and uh, Western German or German. Um, and then uh, what's interesting is that then the um, then the uh, the federal uh, Stasi records archive and and Hohenschutzhausen in this period of 2011 to 2014 um, shift to have. A large number of actors from the Middle East and North Africa in their networks in the context of, of the Arab Spring. And then also what's interesting is that there are quite a significant number of um, actors in particularly the Stiftung Alpha Beitung's network uh, in, the, in the foundation for the reappraisal of the SED dictatorships networks um, from East Asia, particularly the Republic of Korea, in fact, almost exclusively from the Republic of Korea. So we're starting to see these regions emerging um, and then I look at what's called components um, in the networks, which is where um, you take out the central actor and see how the network falls apart, which shows you how how actors are clustered without the central component. Um, and what we see then is that it falls apart into almost regions, more or less. Um, so the post-socialist actors are all in one region and the, the MENA actors are all in another region. And... Um, East Asian actors actually tend to be bilateral um, 
collaborations with just with the central actor. So that means that they, they disappear entirely. Um, so then we get a sense that there is this this regional clustering, um, which um, we can then measure more mathematically using the concept of homophily. Um, so homophily means the extent to which an actor collaborates with actors like itself according to whatever criteria. So looking particularly at region, um, if an actor is is located in Poland, um, so we're putting it in the region of, of post-socialist Central and Eastern Europe, it means that most it will have high homophily if most of the actors that it was connected to were also in that region. Um, uh, so other Polish actors or, or actors from the Czech Republic or actors from Hungary. Um, and what we see when we kind of do the homophily analysis is that um, there is an, a higher than expected level of homophily in almost all of the networks, um, which suggests that this regional clustering. And then um, when we kind of drill down to who's connecting with whom, we see that it's particularly um, kind of post-socialist actors or MENA actors who have high homophily, whereas the Western European which in these networks is principally Western German actors, don't. Um, and then when we look particularly at the, the most influential, um, and that's another measure that I look at, um, so I measure who are the most influential actors in this network by looking at um, something called uh, between the centrality, um, which means the extent to which an actor sits between two other actors, um, which means that they actor A would have to go through actor B in order to have a conversation with actor C. Um, now, in SNA, the idea is that, that those actors with a high between this centrality occupy a position of power and brokerage um, because they're able to control information in the network, but also they have access to um, different narratives or in our context, or perhaps they have m- more power to distribute their own narrative to different groups. And a large number of those central actors, not all of them, but a large number of them are kind of powerful German government institutions or paragovernmental institutions. Um, And what we see when we look at the um, homophily measures for these central actors is even more the case, is if they are uh, Western European, which exclusively means in this context German, uh, they have a high level of heterophily, um, which means that they're connecting with lots of different types of actors. Whereas if they are um, kind of central uh, post-socialist actors or Central and Eastern European actors or Middle Eastern and North African actors, then they have a high level of homophily, which means they're mostly being connected to actors like themselves. Um, now, I should add, this is in these networks created by and through the, through the organisations that I'm looking at. It's not to say um, that a particular Polish actor doesn't have loads of connections um, with other actors across the world. It's saying that when, say, Horn Schönhausen creates these networks, um, it brings in German governmental and paragovernmental actors in multiple different collaborations with different regions. Whereas if it brings in, say, the Institute for National Remembrance in Poland, it collects it only with other institutions, almost exclusively with other institutions in Central and Eastern Europe, um, or um, kind of actors uh, in um, NGOs in Tunisia are connected with other actors uh, in Tunisia or, or possibly elsewhere in the Middle East and North Africa, um, not with, I don't know, somebody in France. Um, and then the other key point from this is that, um, so Western Europe, um, as a kind of historical ref- as a historical referent and region, doesn't exist or in these networks um, to any significant extent. Um, so you might say, well, okay, that's not surprising. Um, that that uh, these organisations are, are collaborating with um, kind of actors in in Central and Eastern Europe more than they are with actors in uh, I don't know France or, or Britain and so on. Um, but what's notable is that they do then create these regions with other parts of the world, whether that be kind of East Asia or Middle East and North Africa. Whereas Western European actors, principally Western German, are just occupying these positions of brokerage between regions rather than constructing a particular historical region. Um, where there is discussion around how to deal with the past, et cetera, in that region. 
Okay, thank you. Yeah, all of this is really new to me too, because I don't ever do quantitative analysis. So I felt um, that it was a really good starting point then to look more into these narratives. And you first discussed the memory zones with the most activity, and you already talked about it. So it's Central and Eastern Europe and the post-Soviet states. And you find that a focus on common histories and a Europeanization of that history is is the focus of those narratives. Um, maybe you can use the Hohenschönhausen Forum or another example to tell us more about this process. Um, yes. Yeah, so as you say, they're kind of in, in chapters three and well, actually in the rest of the book, kind of in the remaining four chapters, it's, it's quite a qualitative analysis. And um, I go into uh, kind of much deeper analysis of some of the uh, some of the collaborative activity uh, to give more of a sense of, you know, the, the kind of flavor that also I would normally give in, in, in writing because um, the quantitative stuff was was new for me as well. Um, so I start, yes, in chapter three, looking at, at kind of intra-European collaborations kind of broadly understood. Of course, the post-Soviet zone perhaps is is a little bit more complicated than, than simply intra-European. Um, so starting with them with, with Central and Eastern Europe post-socialist, what we see, um, yes, as you said, is this kind of idea. Uh, so looking at the, the narratives and the activities that are dominant in this region, it's things like conferences, joint research projects, um, so things that are really involve intense collaboration with another organisation on the basis of shared expertise. And the narratives that are attached to those are around shared expertise um, and around uh, shared expertise on the basis of some kind of common history. Um, so then the narratives that you get, uh, yeah, for example, around the Honschenhausen Forum are uh, in kind of, I think, uh, uh, across across different editions of that um, are kind of different versions of these institutions. Um, so the, the Institute for National Remembrance in Poland is a prominent actor here, um, but also other other places, uh, other similar kind of state-funded institutions in uh, other Central and Eastern European countries coming together with Hohenschönhausen in order to promote um, memory of the victims of communism into European memory narratives with um, an implicit or sometimes very explicit criticism, particularly of German memory culture, um, but also Western European memory culture more broadly, uh, for not doing that adequately um, in, in this story, in this narrative. Um, and, I mean, Hohenschönhausen perhaps has the strongest element of that, but we do see it across the other institutions as well, with the Stiftung Alpha Beitung having a slightly more ambivalent position on this. Um, in that the um, kind of uniqueness of the Holocaust um, and the, those crimes of national socialism being more emphasised by the Stiftung Alpharbeitung than we see for the other institutions. Um, but nonetheless, that kind of narrative of bringing, uh, bringing communism into European memories is strong. Um, and I think what's interesting is, um, apart from sort of some of the later um, activities of the, of the Stiftung Alpharbeitung, of the foundation, what there is this narrative of we're trying to get Western Europe to remember us, but there isn't very many, there aren't very many Western European actors actually invited or involved into these collaborations. So it tends to be a kind of quite uh, a dialogue within that region. Um, and then um, that kind of then uh, leads into the, the discussion around the post-Soviet zone, as I've called it, the kind of the post-Soviet memory region. Um, where we see often something very similar going on. Um, so narratives of a shared past and, and coming together to remember that shared past and promote it into a European memory, um, particularly with those um, formerly, uh, for those countries formerly in the Soviet Union who are now in the European Union, so particularly the, um, the Baltic countries, um, where there is that sense that they are part of this, part of this European mode of remembrance. But then when we look at actors um, who are positioned more kind of rhetorically as being on the edges of Europe, um, so Ukraine and, um, and Georgia, we do see a similar narrative and that there are like discussions of us having a shared history and them dealing with similar challenges. But they tend to be positioned as junior actors. Um, in one case, I think it's the Georgian one, literally as young um, researchers uh, who are... Um, 
who are kind of playing catch up almost and need to learn from the more experienced German partner on, on how to do these things. Um, and there's an argument there that I that I make that this is kind of positioning these different um, countries, these different kind of contexts along a civilizational slope where we see those uh, countries that are now kind of part of the European Union and seen as Europe proper uh, higher up the civilizational slope than places like Ukraine and Georgia um, and later on Albania as well, um, where there is a sense that, yes, you are part of our history, part of our memory, but you're still not quite where you should be in terms of memory standardization, as Leah David calls it. Um, and then finally, I look at Western Europe. Um, and because in the narrative analysis, all the German actors are taken out, we're looking particularly at Western European actors who are not German. Um, what we see there um, is collaborations where, where the, uh, for example, the BSTU lends uh, a town in France an exhibition. Um, and it's, or, or uh, an ex- there's an exhibition in London. And it's very much, it's about the GDR past with no reference to the French past or the British past. So it's not about... Um, a kind of uh, a learning about a history other than GDR history. So it's a very different kind of learning. Um, and it, again, it, it speaks to the absence of Western Europe um, in these narratives. All right. So um, in chapter four, then you move out of Europe and you look at East Asia and the Middle East, North African zones. Um, And MENA in particular became a new focus for two of the organizations during the Arab Spring. And what we see in this chapter is that the focus is not so much on common histories more, but it is a more unidirectional approach of maybe teaching how to do things. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Um, yeah. Um, so kind of the conclusion of, of chapter three is, is that we have these kind of concentric rings almost around in the network. So um, the core of the network is Central and Eastern Europe, and then the post-Soviet zone occupies this kind of first concentric ring around it. And then the periphery is occupied by these um, non-European contexts. Um, so to kind of start with uh, East Asia, which um, is is an area of interest for all three actors, although in, in, in slightly different ways, what we see is that the collaboration is not really about history anymore. Um, it's about the present or the future of the other country, not of Germany. Um, or, or it's about German history in the context of the present and future of, of the other countries. Um, so particularly collaborations um, with the Republic of Korea are centred um, almost exclusively around the um, around questions of unification uh, and the idea that Koreans want to learn from Germany about how to do unification at some point in the future. Um, and um, so the narrative of, of, of learning from the Germans there is, is, is very strong on the part of the German actor. I mean, there are some evidences, but it's generally we have done this successfully um, and we have things to teach the other uh, the Korean context, uh, the Korean actors um, about how to do this successfully. Um, there isn't any indication that that's not well received in the Korean context. I think that would be another piece of research to see. Um, on the other hand, there is no recognition that the concept of unification is ambivalent in, uh, or rece- is, is seen ambivalently um, or um, not necessarily kind of positively um, by, by people living in the Republic of Korea or not, not by all people living in the Republic of Korea. There is some ambivalence around it and also some criticism of the, the German model or, or, or con- discussion around how the German model actually would, would not work um, in that context. Um, we don't see any of that in the narratives created by these German actors. Um, Hornschenhausen actually is slightly different in this context in that they, they do work with um, actors from the Republic of Korea, but the focus actually tends to be on human rights abuses in North Korea. Um, and um, they also work with a large number of Chinese actors. And again, the focus tends to be on contemporary human rights abuses in China. Um, and particularly things around censorship um, and political activists who've been imprisoned. Um, And here the the kind of narrative actually um, constructs Hornschenhausen as as part of this transnational network of human rights actors, of of actors supporting human rights across the globe. Um, And 
can North Korean or actors or actors from the Republic of Korea and actors from China can be part of it to the extent to which they uh, subscribe to this particular liberal democratic model of, of human rights activism. And there isn't really any kind of discussion of, of different ideas about human rights and models of human rights in these different contexts and, and these political actors possibly having different models and ideas of human rights. Um, so they're here, it's not so much learning from, though there is an aspect of that, it's it's more Hohenschönhausen as being part of this existing transnational network. And what's, what's notable is in both cases, um, it's aspects of the German past being used not to talk about aspects of the past in the Republic of Korea, China, or North Korea, it's about the, their future, um, their future or their present. And we see something similar in the MENA region um, with the Stasi Records Archive and Hohenschönhausen in that they, uh, they, they are kind of brought in for the most part by the German Foreign Office uh, through the transformation partnerships in, in the wake of the Arab Spring um, particularly into Tunisia and Egypt, although there are other actors in other contexts. And the narrative is very much, we are going to teach them how to overcome dictatorship or how to alpha Biden dictatorship um, in, in the region, um, using the German history and the German models and, and that also that they, they want to learn from us. Um, and here we do have evidence of some ambivalent responses um, on, on the part of, of the Tunisian, Tunisian actors in particular, um, not in the sense that they completely reject the idea of, of, of German support, but that they they don't necessarily want to kind of take it on, on wholesale, that, they, that there's a kind of resistance to that as well. Um, and again, it's about the present moment, and it's particularly about uh, democracy promotion and democratic transition, um, which also means that we can think about those and critique those activities uh, in the same way that, that democracy promotion by Western European actors in that region has been critiqued. Um, and in all cases, these institutions kind of flip from being um, agents of memory and memory politics to becoming agents of, of democratic transition um, and democracy promotion, also with the support, including kind of financial support of, of, of German governmental actors such as the German Foreign Office, but also um, the paragovernmental actors, so that the German political foundations, particularly the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung um, and the Friedrich Ebert Stiftung. Okay, so you already mentioned now the Foreign Office and those foundations, and you go deeper into that in your fifth chapter, where you move to a discussion of brokers that bridge and transcend different zones. So building on what you already just mentioned, who are the German actors that connect these multiple memory zones and how do they do that? So building up those kind of patterns across the networks, then we can build up a picture of um, the kind of meaning structure of, of these networks. So we have the structures, uh, so the regions. We have the kind of idea of the relationship cultures within those different regions, whether that be about common histories and sisterhoods um, and that kind of uh, collaboration um, in order to promote uh, memory of communism and European memory, the kind of more ambivalent, um, narratives within the post-Soviet zone and then in the MENA and Eastern European zone, very much the kind of learning from Germans' uh, relationship cultures. And then the kind of missing piece, uh, as I describe it in this chapter, is he's connecting those different regions. Um, and so I go back to the kind of centrality measures and identify who those connectors are. And in this chapter, I focus particularly on the German uh, brokers. Um, so that's the German Foreign Office, um, the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung, Friedrich Ebert Stiftung, um, and German governmental actors, of which there are kind of a wide variety who are kind of analysed in a little bit more detail or identified in more detail within the chapter. What I do in this is, is there's more pictures. I look at their ego nets. So an ego net is um, who they are connected to within the act in, within the network and identify some of those activities that create those networks. Um, and um, what we see, uh, for example, with the German Foreign Office is a is a clear focus on democracy promotion, which is perhaps not surprising considering the, the remit and nature of that organization. What for me was surprising that they were was that they were using um, institutions like the the, the, Fed, uh, the Stasi Records Archive uh, in order to do that, um, because I think that speaks to the particular function of memory um, and memory politics in Germany, which I think is unusual. I can't think of an, an institution in the UK that would be taken 
uh, by our foreign office to uh, somewhere in North Africa in order to promote democratic transition. So I think this speaks to the to the centrality of these organisations uh, of memory um, as as part of of uh, Germany's kind of mission as as, as a as a nation. Uh, kind of it's the foreign office's mission. It also means that we can think about, as I said, critique these activities in the same way that um, other methods of democracy promotion in that region in particular have been critiqued um, as in part not recognising um, the particular cultural context of the Arab Spring and the particular demands of the Arab Spring, which weren't necessarily transitioned to a liberal democratic model, um, Western model. In fact, you know, in general, it kind of commentators have said that it was more about economic and social justice, which is actually not served very well um, by the uh, liberal democratic model of transition, where there tends to be a focus on individual injustices. That's the kind of German Foreign Office and and also a similar role, uh, although um, perhaps uh, less kind of uh, imposing of, of a particular narrative that we see for the Friedrich Ebert Stiftung. For the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung, what's actually was actually a bit of a surprise to me um, was that they they do play a role um, in um, kind of connecting, uh, particularly kind of von Schoenhausen BSTU with with actors in the Middle East and North Africa. But actually, their centrality comes from their involvement in um, collaborations relating to Central and Eastern Europe and the post-socialist space. Um, and what you see there is actually they're very involved in promotion of um, narratives about um, whether or not communism or Stalinism can be equated to national socialism with some with some actually quite surprising um, texts and conferences and, and, and so on going on where you see that that uh, that narrative that actually the two things can be equated quite strongly and, and the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung um, are quite often involved. So, for example, they're involved at the Hornschenhausen Forum um, and they were uh, involved um, in, in another conference uh, where it was kind of comparing um, racial discrimination and class discrimination in a way that suggested an equation rather than, than just a comparison. Then the German government actors, um, who are very diverse, although I say that they tends to be from the centre of the political spectrum um, rather than the extremes. Um, so we don't see much involvement from um, kind of the left. Um, I mean, or the AfD weren't in Parliament at this point, but but certainly, you know, even from the left who were in Parliament at this point. Um, and they tend to incorporate these institutions into their own transnational activities um, where they're kind of touring particular regions they they the kind of representative the director of the bstu goes on on trips with german government officials or they are involved in um activities organized um by um the the stasi records archive or hornschenhausen um which kind of gives them also a platform to promote particular views about memory politics um and i think this kind of yet again highlights the importance of memory um in, in terms of the, the way that the, the German government acts externally uh, in the rest of the world. Um, so, yeah, important part of kind of Germany's nation brand and, and also a form of, of soft power, um, a way of, of kind of persuading people to your particular point of view by by promoting kind of positive things. Um, and one of those positive things is Germany's uh, apparent success in, in dealing with dictatorship. Okay, you conclude your book uh, by saying, and you already hinted on that too, that a collaborative memory has not been achieved yet. I took that as uh, one of the, oh, I took as one of the reasons that there is this universalizing colonial and Eurocentric approach to the export of memory. And you've, you've talked about this a little bit already. But would you summarize this argument um, and talk about how one would decolonize memory work to make mm -hmm. it more collaborative? Well, I'm not sure I can answer the second one. Um, so yeah, so the, the kind of the, the chapter six after the kind of the, the German German uh, brokers looks at kind of non-German brokers, um, particularly in Poland, Albania, Romania, and Tunisia, and and highlights how uh, you know, th these are the these are the texts that I had access to kind of linguistically um, and and physically. 
Um, so looking at them and in all all of those contexts, you see a resistance um, to some degree to the to the particular German narrative, whether that be kind of uh, actually seeing the Germans as not very important um, or these particular institutions as not very important or whether it be kind of taking particular aspects of the German approach, but really kind of seeing that as just one among among many options and also asserting the importance of um, kind of the own, their own national context and specificity. Um, so in some ways you might think, well, that sounds truly collaborative, right? The, these actors are being a, being agents and they're, um, they're collaborating with the Germans and they're, and they're taking parts of the German approach and really um, uh, kind of setting that in their own context and in, 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 in other contexts and so on. So we're seeing what we're seeing is collaborative. Um, however, my question is, is it really collaborative if the Germans aren't learning anything? or they aren't doing the same thing. Um, so is it collaborative if the Germans are going with their model and rather than kind of their model as one uh, provincialized kind of mosaic piece in, in what might be said to be a kind of larger picture of how one might approach um, memory and democratic, democracy promotion through remembering? Um, so to my mind, the collaborative memory has not been achieved because we still have um, coloniality um, embedded um, in the way that German memory actors, and maybe not just them, are approaching uh, transnational collaboration as as according to the narratives that they, those institutions are producing about those collaborations. Um, so in terms of what how we might change that, um, it is um about yes provincializing decentering um the european model or the german model um or the cosmopolitan model or however you want to describe it not to say that it's not valuable and it's not kind of done a lot of good in in its particular context in the world in terms of of overcoming dictatorship and and promoting support for victims and, and and so on but to say that's one model that's one piece of the jigsaw or one fragment of the mosaic um, which we're, we are bringing to a discussion, um, but it is a discussion and exchange around potential other other approaches. And there are kind of lots of different ones that I mentioned in the book, and I'm kind of reluctant to, you know, from my own positionality um, as as a white woman um, in the UK, my own positionality, I, I don't think it's to me to say, and this is what that looks like, because um, that's that's not that's 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 not my role um but to say that we could uh if we provincialize it and have that discussion then we may find um also solutions to some of the intractable problems within within german memory culture but perhaps also other other european memory cultures so in the concepts of the gdr thinking um, particularly about ongoing social and economic inequality between east and west which also underpins um, kind of a lack of reconciliation between the two parts of the country, um, but also thinking about um, uh, how we can remember uh, colonialism in in Germany alongside memory of the Holocaust. Okay, yeah, thank you so much. And of course, there are lots more examples and the visuals in your book. So people should go and read the book uh, to get an even bigger picture of all these things that, that you're showing there. But we've taken up a lot of your time. So our traditional last question is to ask about your current projects. What are you working on now? Uh, yeah, that's um, that's interesting. Yeah, so uh, we ha I currently am um, principal investigator for a, a three-year project, which is funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council, which is called Post-Socialist Britain. Um, so what we are looking at uh, is the relationship between memory, migration and identity um, amongst Polish, German and now Ukrainian uh, migrants uh, in the UK. Um, so... Uh, what uh, I kind of particularly want to, and there's lots of different aspects of the project, it's a really large project, but what I particularly want to explore um, is these kind of interconnections between post-socialism and post-colonialism through the lens of migration um, to a country like Britain, um, which is extremely what we would call super diverse, um, and particularly a city like Birmingham, which is extremely super diverse. Um, and think also how Britain can be thought of as a post-socialist space, or a post-Cold War space um, where we have these uh, collisions, interactions 
of the post-colonial and the post-socialist. Um, and also how, um, uh, so I'm kind of developing this concept of mnemonic conviviality. Um, so conviviality is a term uh, in migration studies developed by Paul Gilroy um, to mean kind of how people live with difference. Um, and what we've kind of observed um, in, in some of the kind of community work that we've done is how people use everyday memories and everyday narratives about their experiences of migration um, or their experiences of living in the UK in order to create a kind of conviviality with people where they're, they're otherwise kind of cultural um, or other divides, cultural or social or class divides. Um, so memory is a way, everyday memory is a way of, of living with di- difference in, um, in super, super diverse societies like the UK. That sounds fascinating. Maybe we get to talk about it in the future. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much for being on the show today. I enjoyed our conversation a lot. Thank you. Take care. Tschüss and goodbye.